Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Del Denwald. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. After a year of intense scrutiny on policing, Oklahoma City police have been advised to put greater priority on de-escalation and improve oversight of their own officers. Meanwhile, OCPD struggles with staffing. reporters Jenna Hayes and Janae Williams on the podcast today. Both of you are putting out stories this week about the Oklahoma City Police Department dealing with local and national outcry against police in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Jenna, let's start with your story. You wrote about ways OCPD was told it could improve in de-escalation, accountability, and mental health calls. First, who gave these recommendations, and ultimately, does OCPD have to follow them? Yeah, so first, um, the recommendations were given by a consulting group called 21CP Solutions. Um, They were actually hired by the city at the recommendation of the mayor's law enforcement policy task force and the community policing working group, which are both groups that formed in the last year like you said, um, after George Floyd's death and all the protests that came out of that. Um, so the first thing I want to say is this: these are 32 um, initial recommendations. Right now, they really don't have any sort of impact. Um, 21CP is just releasing these, and they're going to be looking for feedback from the task force and the working group. Um, before they put together their final list of recommendations. 21CP has described this to us is that, you know, these recommendations are sort of the skeleton and we're putting a little bit more flesh on the bone over these next couple of weeks and looking at how they might be implemented. Once that comes out, which right now they're hoping to have it out by the end of September, um, but it could be before the end of the year. Um, Once that comes out, they will send that over to the city council And basically, the city council, you know, will decide whether or not they want to approve the recommendations. If they do approve them, then the city manager and Chief Wade Gorley would then um, take it upon themselves to actually um, follow through and start enforcing those recommendations. Now, one of the most important recommendations focused on de-escalation, like de-escalation of a situation that could turn violent. Um, Oklahoma City Police uh, has de-escalation as a procedure in its officer manual, but the department was told it should be prioritized even higher. Uh, Tell us about that. Yes. So like you said, right now it's a procedure, um, and 21CP is recommending that it become an actual policy in the OKC operations manual. And 
basically they're recommending that because policy is sort policies are um, principles and values that the police officers have to follow at all times, whereas a procedure is kind of a method of dealing with a certain situation. So I think really because every situation is different, you really can't expect there to be like a certain set of rules that work for every situation. But if de-escalation is an actual value that these officers are taught and really um, focus on, then the hope is that it would um, have more of an impact and show that the department actually cares more about that. Um, And nine of the 32 initial recommendations fall under the de-escalation category. Um, Some of the other ones have to do with use of force, um, being more transparent about use of force incidences, and um, kind of changing the way that they interview officers after um, shootings. Right now, they can wait 48 hours, um, and 21CP is recommending that they are interviewed um, during that same shift. And they would also recommend uh, not letting officers view video evidence before an interview about a shooting, um, which Chief Gorley said that he does support that recommendation. I believe they also mentioned mental health calls um, within those recommendations. Did, Did they suggest any changes on that front? Yeah. So right now, the recommendations don't really have very much um, specifics when it comes to um, alternative responses for mental health calls. Um, Assistant City Manager Kenton Sudel pointed out that the city has already um, set aside money for kind of an alternative model, um, but there really hasn't been a lot of action towards what that would look like. Um, so 21CP, um, w- one of their recommendations is that the city issue what's called a request for information um, to kind of gather information from community resources um, and figure out like what places have an actual capacity to um, be involved in an alternative response model. Um, Because right now they really just don't know what that would look like. Um, I know there's talk in the report Um, about other models such as cahoots in Oregon. Chief Gorley kind of said he's open to um, something like that, but right now it's just kind of in the beginning phases um, and 21CP is just kind of pushing Oklahoma City to move that along, basically. I think there's been national criticism of police task forces and and recommendations like these as having little impact on the large scale issues of use of force and and disproportionate impacts on communities of color. Uh, Chief Wade Gorley, by the way he talked, seemed open to the recommendations, but even he seemed a bit unsure how these changes were going to be made in day to day operations. Do people see these recommendations as actually going anywhere and making any difference? Yeah, so I definitely say the people that are involved 
with this set of recommendations, with the task force and the community police working group, they definitely um, believe that these recommendations can make a difference. Um, What I will say is Chief Gorley and others have pointed out that some of the recommendations could actually be really easy to implement, while others are going to see challenges as far as budget goes. Um, There may be some legal things that they'll have to get around. And specifically, I know that the Fraternal Order of Police um, in Oklahoma City has said that there are some of the recommendations that will be subject to negotiation under their collective bargaining agreement. So it kind of seems to me like even if city council approves these recommendations, there's other um, other hoops that they might have to jump through. It sounds like there's a longer road before we see any of these changes in place than, than even these recommendations might seem like from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing that I look at in there um, that, you know, I think this is crazy or outlandish or anything like that. I just, I look at some of them and think, you know, okay, how do we get there? How do we get to that point? And I know specifically the recommendations that have to do with body cam footage or interviewing officers, those definitely um, will fall under um, the FOP contract. Um, But 21CP has said when they release their final report, they will separate the recommendations out so that city council can see which ones um, have basically like no challenges or stumbling blocks to them versus those that may have some hoops to jump through or would just be um, on a longer timeline, basically. Um, So I definitely am interested to see that final report and see what 21CP thinks can be done immediately. We'll now switch over to talking about Janae's story. Janae, your story focused on the struggle that Oklahoma City police have had in losing officers and recruiting new ones. Is the department operating at a net loss in personnel right now? Yeah, so what I found when I requested data from the the Human Resources Department at the City of Oklahoma City um, is that actually since 2016, the total number of exits from the department that were voluntary, so people choosing to leave either through retirement or just leaving the force to to go elsewhere or go to other jobs, was uh, it was an increase of 183%, which when I did that math and figured that out, it was kind of shocking to me. So, so I just want to be clear here. The, the number of people leaving grew by that much. Yes. So, you know, we're talking about a lot of people gone who weren't there before. Yes. So basically, the, they gave me year over year the number of people that left each year in the same time period. And so looking at that, in, in especially in the year from 2019 to 2020 and then 2020 to 2021, those numbers went up. Now, part of that, it's important to remember, is just people that are retiring. Um, they're hitting that peak retirement age of 25 to 35 years of service, and they're they're getting out essentially while the getting's good, is what Chief Gorley said. You know, their stock options are at a great place; they're ready to go. But in 2019 and 2020, 63 percent of exits from the police force in Oklahoma City were people that were voluntary exits that were not retiring. That means in 2019, 2020, um, which I did the time period from July to June 30th, July 1st to June 30th, 63 percent of the people that left were leaving because they just didn't want to be a part of the force anymore or were going elsewhere. Just quit their job. Yep, quit their job. Exactly. 
And so when you look at that, um, 1,235 is the magic number for the entire staff, including administrative detectives and everything in Oklahoma City. Of those, about 650 are people that are on the streets. Right now, they're down 160 officers. So when you look at the fact that they're supposed to have 606 to 650, but only less than 500 are out there that should be, that definitely explains, you know, increases in call times and some other issues that they might be experiencing. One thing I found to be really interesting in your story was the collective impact of officers being criminally charged for shooting people on the job. Six officers have had criminal charges filed against them for fatally shooting 15-year-old Stavian Rodriguez and 60-year-old Benny Edwards. Has that discouraged people from wanting to become police officers? Absolutely, Naria. Not only does it discourage people from wanting to become police officers, but it encourages people to leave the force. There are people that are leaving the force because they are afraid that they could end up charged when they think that they're following the rules that they're supposed to be. We've had officers that have had criminal charges filed against them, so that has an impact on other officers that think, you know, I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to lose everything, you know, based off something that I think I'm doing the right thing, but then um, I could wind up in, in jail over that. So I do think it has an impact. So there's this fear that Not only are they afraid of what could happen if a call goes the wrong way or if, you know, a situation goes poorly, but there also is this fear I learned from an expert that I spoke to about uh, their administration or city officials not having their backs. And there's this real deep-rooted fear for a lot of officers that there's just no one supporting them. And when you pair that with the pressure from the, from the community a lot of times, um, it just a lot of officers say there's, there's nothing worth getting into that career for anymore or staying in that career for. Now, there's also a struggle in recruiting a diverse police force, women and people of color. Uh, there seem to be competing ideas of, of whether diversifying your the, the employment of the police force would actually improve policing. Um, and, you know, th- there might be some common sense reasons to think why it should, uh, common sense reasons to think why it might not. So does diversifying the police force uh, improve the police's uh, ability to do their job? So it's definitely a bit of a catch-22. A lot of times people in communities, um, and we hear this across every industry, representation is key. A lot of times if people see people who look like them doing a certain job, it increases their likelihood to go into that industry or it helps with an understanding between communities. But one of the things that was said to me when I was interviewing people about this was that, do you want someone who looks like you on the streets policing you or do you want someone who's going to treat you fairly and equitably? And um, there's actually, there have been studies and and people have witnessed that sometimes police officers of color are brought in, they feel like they have to overperform. And so sometimes they have a tendency to treat people in their own communities more harshly than other people would, because they feel like if they don't, people think they're being too easy on those people because of their skin color, or they feel like they have to go above and beyond to prove themselves in a certain career. And so it's definitely a double-edged sword. People 
can make arguments, like you said, on both sides of it. And I definitely see where the community says, like, people need to be invested in and getting to know the people in the community because the best way to police them is through knowing who you're policing. But it is absolutely one of those things where it's a very thin line and it can go either way. It was so interesting, though, what um, J.B. Williams, uh, no relation to you, right? <laughs> um, he He's a, vo- a leading voice in the Northeast side. He, he's a, a musician and a business owner. And it, I was so interested when he talked about how having someone on the police force from that community might have made a difference for Benny Edwards. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and what he had to say? Yeah, absolutely. So when I talked to J.B., he, he said, you know, Uh, One of the most important things is people knowing those people in those neighborhoods, like I said. And so um, he said, had someone that was from that community been the officer that responded in the Benny Edwards situation, it would have been more of a, oh, that's Benny. We know who Benny is. Let's call so-and-so and and they can come and get Benny and they'll take care of him and everything will be okay. Because when you have people that are invested in those communities, know the regular people in those communities. They understand that there are certain people within those communities who they have to look out for because these people have mental health issues or struggles that the entire community knows about and can help with. And because they already have those relationships established, they're able to do that. And we talked a little bit about how even if maybe the person isn't from that community, if they spend time in that community and actually take the time to get to know the people in that community, it can help start building those relationships. Gotcha. Chief Gorley told you that even with a fully staffed police department, it's hard to implement community policing because he's responsible for patrolling 631 square miles. That's huge. What do experts say about that? And does the department consider community policing a priority? Yeah, so when I spoke to Chief Gorley, he said they really do um, want community policing to be a big part of what they do. But like you said, it's it's hard for them because they have 631 square miles. And like I said, when they're fully staffed, 600 to 650 people that are on the streets and they're not all on the streets at the same time. So that's one person per square mile if they were all on the street at the same time. So... They're, they're operating at these lower numbers right now. But I spoke to a professor named David Thomas who is at Florida Gulf Coast University. He's an expert in policing in America and police mental health. And he said it doesn't matter what the staff is, that community policing always has to be a priority because without it, you just don't build that trust that's required. And that trust is the only thing that will help these communities get to a point where they know that the police aren't out to get them and aren't trying to hurt them, but are actually there to protect and serve and to help them in the time that they need them. This is a really awesome topic. And uh, in my head, as we were talking, I, you know, I came up with maybe three or four more questions that I could probably ask uh, to talk about. I really hope that, uh, that you two continue your reporting on these issues uh, as we go forward and, and learn more from both the consulting group and their recommendations and what the police are going to do about it and really to to hear from the police about you know the struggles the real very real struggles that they have in performing their duties in and around the city um, and, and also the impact that they have on the community so I really hope that uh, that we have some some continued good reporting about that thank you thank you guys yeah thanks for having us and thank you our listeners for joining us this week This podcast is possible because of the Oklahoman subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more 
Every Day in the Oklahoman and at Oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.